0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, glad to have our visitors and old friends with us this morning. Look forward to spending time with you and catching up. And uh, I do invite you to turn with me, all of you, in God's Word to Psalm 133, taking a, a brief break from the Gospel of John. If you would turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, let us hear together the Word of God. A song of ascent of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Let us pray and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. If you would, let's unite our hearts and bow together. Our Father, we pray that You would continue to pour out upon this congregation a great spirit of brotherly love. That we would dwell together in unity for Your glory. Father, all of us give You our deepest gratitude for Your mercies to us as a church and how You have, by Your grace, lavished upon us genuine, sincere Christian love. And Father, we want to again revisit this passage of Your Word to be reminded of Your goodness to us to be encouraged that Your Spirit continues to be at work and Lord, to be exhorted from Your Word that we would not grow complacent in these things. That we would not take Your good gifts for granted. But Father, that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of the Gospel of Christ. That we would all together with one heart and one mind seek to be a church that stands side by side as fellow soldiers and friends for the cause of the Gospel. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We pray that You would teach our hearts, instruct our minds. Father, help us to be those who apply the truth of the Gospel. That because Christ has welcomed us, we can welcome one another with gladness, with thankfulness. Father, come and be our teacher, we pray. Encourage our hearts this Lord's Day from Your Word and feed us on the bread of life in the Gospel and the glorious new creation that Christ is creating in this new humanity His Bride. Father, cause us to be as a city set on a hill. Cause us to be as light and salt in the world that we would be different from the world that is plagued by division and sin and that we would be those marked by unity and love and forbearance for one another. Help us, we pray. We thank You for Your Word. We pray that we would be built up in it this Lord's Day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story. Many of you have heard me say, tell this story before. There's a story recorded for us in church history. By, it's, it's given to us by Jerome about the Apostle John. So it's extra-biblical church history, but it comes on good authority that the Apostle John, who was the last living Apostle, when he got to be a very elderly man, he would actually have to be carried by his disciples into the church where he would preach. And oftentimes, his sermons would consist of nothing more than his exhortation to the congregation, little children love one another. It was that simple. And pretty soon, some of his disciples got somewhat annoyed and they asked John, why do you keep repeating little children love one another? To which John replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. Now, if you've been with uh, us at Bethany for any length of time, you know I try to preach on Psalm 133 uh, once a year towards the end of the year um, regarding the subject of unity and love together in the body. And some of you might be sitting here feeling like John's disciples on why does he keep coming back to this year after year. And... There are a couple reasons I'm drawn back to it and pastorally why I think it's important to intentionally put before my people these issues of unity and love. Number one is that as the Lord continues to add to our number here at Bethany for which we're very grateful for, there are some of you who are new to what it is like to be a part of a healthy church that lives together in unity and love. And the second reason is that even if you've been here, and even if you've heard me preach on this psalm, first of all, you probably don't remember what I said a year ago this time. I may have skipped last year. I don't, I'm not sure. And it's for that very reason that because we forget, we need to be put into remembrance of these things. Uh, Paul writes to the church. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. And pastorally, I think now is an appropriate time for us to be reminded um, I don't preach my sermons for YouTube. I preach my sermons for you. The actual congregation God has put under our charge as elders to shepherd you. And it's appropriate, Bethany, for us to first of all give thanks to God for the blessing of unity that He's given us here. Unity is not a given in the church. Some of you know that from previous experience. We know that from churches in the New Testament. Unity is the gift of God. But secondly, we need to be reminded of our duty to continue to pursue love and unity here at Bethany. Um, unity in the church is one of those things that we tend not to appreciate until suddenly we realize it's gone. And suddenly, you realize that you know, the church that used to be marked by warmth and forbearance and charity just now feels unstable. It feels like that fragile bond of unity is beginning uh, to get uh, stress cracks in it. And, and it seems that suspicions have crept in and, and resentments have crept in. And I'll, I'll tell you this, Bethany, in the last year, I know of congregations who have experienced that. And I've got close friends who are pastors who have had to walk through the agony of pastoring a disunified congregation. And it should remind all of us that but for the grace of God, there go we. And it should cause us to want to get on our knees before God and to beg the Lord, Lord, don't let us become stagnant and presumptuous. It is heartbreaking, not to mention an impediment to the Gospel and the witness of the Gospel, when the church doesn't look any different from the world. The church that Christ has purchased by His blood is literally the only institution on earth that can embody Jesus' words in John 13, by this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. And So Bethany, I want to call us this morning to think upon the kindness of God. He has poured out upon us lavishly A spirit of unity. And I genuinely think that's true. That's not just me as a pastor, you know, giving you your yearly pat on the back and kind of let's fake it and you know, let's say we're unified so that maybe it'll actually come true. Um, Honestly, anytime someone asks me, another another pastor, for instance, asks me, how's the church at Bethany going? One of the things I almost always reply with. Is that God has genuinely given our people a sincere gospel love rooted in love for one another? Our people are for one another, they're not against one another. Even though, yes, we have warts and at times we have our skirmishes, our people seek to walk in the gospel. And we ought to bless God for that and not to be presumptuous regarding that, but rather, we should seek to excel still more. Because Christ has not been perfectly formed in any of us. None of us have arrived. The devils We are still very much susceptible to the devil's schemes. And we know that the devil rejoices when the church is at each other's throats and so distracted by internal strife that she's lost her focus on standing firm for the Gospel to an unbelieving world. And so, this morning, let us hear God's Word to our hearts. Okay? I want to encourage each and every one of us to do that. Don't think about how this should land on the person sitting next to you. The Spirit's able to deal with them. You deal with your heart regarding the issues of Christian love and unity. So, let, let's consider the text. Uh, in terms of outline, all I want to do this morning is outline the text, kind of draw out some of the main key points, and then at the end we will draw out practical application for how we can pursue unity and love with one another. So let's begin by walking through the psalm. Okay? And if you don't already, I encourage you to have your Bible open to Psalm 133. This psalm, obviously you realize it's a very short psalm, it's also a very simple psalm once you understand some of the imagery that's being used. Psalm 133 has one main thrust, and it's stated right there in verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Okay, That's the main point of this psalm. If you walk away with nothing else, that's it. Verse 1 states the truth, and then verses 2 and 3 illustrate that truth. Okay, Now, just to orient us, to give us context, you'll notice from the small print at the top of this psalm that it's a psalm of ascents. And what that means is it's a part of the Psalter that would have been part of Israel's liturgy that would have been sung by Jewish pilgrims as they ascend up to Jerusalem for the feast to worship God as the people of God. That's what, that's what songs, uh, Psalms of Ascent are. And what that means and tells us is that brothers here... how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. What that tells us is that brothers here is not referring to domestic bliss within the, fam- the household not denying that that's a refreshing thing as well, but this is is not domestic bliss. This is the corporate people of God bliss. Okay, And that would have been vividly understood by the Jewish pilgrim as he sung this psalm as he ascended this mountain up to the city of God and his eyes would land upon thousands upon thousands of his fellow Jewish kinsmen from all different walks of life, from all different tribes of Israel in different regions, and he saw them all making the same exact journey he was making for the same purpose, to gather as the people of God to worship the one true God. And it was a picture for the pilgrim of we all together, not just my tribe, but all Israel, even though we belong to different regions, we are the people of the Lord who has redeemed us from the land of Egypt. And that it's that covenant that the Lord has made with us which binds us together. Now Christian, how does that apply to us in the church? In the new covenant, we are not merely bound by a common redemption out of a physical bondage into a particular physical land. In the New Covenant, we are bound together by our common deliverance from sin and that purchased by the very blood of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how often we need to be reminded that that bond is literally stronger than any other bond there is in this world. To be united, not because we share in common our skin color, or our political leanings, or our particular preferences, or our pet peeves, or whatever it might be, we are united because you are in Christ and I am in Christ. And if, if we share the same Christ, we must receive one another because Christ has received us. Ephesians 4, Paul reminds us we share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one fa- uh, Father. We are all indwelt by the same one Spirit of Christ who raised Christ from the dead, and we are all walking together towards the one and same new heavens and new earth where we will be together with Christ and with one another forever. Christ Himself is the basis of our unity. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we literally share a more intimate bond together than we share even with our physical unbelieving family. And when we grasp that, it has massive implications for how we live together. Because when the church lets the Gospel and Christ Himself be at the center and the foundation of the reason why I love you and you love me and we dwell together in unity, when Christ is at the foundation of that, what that does is it makes immediately a million other issues become merely peripheral issues what background we come from, what experiences we have or don't have, the things we share in common, the things we like, the things we don't like, all of those things become secondary matters. And you know, that's one reason that the the Gospel and the love that the church has for one another, that's one reason that the love of the church has always been unexplainable to the world. In the first century, this was astonishing. Jew and Gentile. Jew and Samaritan being brought into the same body. Coming to the same Lord's table together. Uh, Slave and free. Male and female. Uh, The world has no category for that. I mean, honestly, in the world, what sorts of people hang out with one another? It's the people that are just like one another. And they have everything in common with each other. Right? The rich hang out with the rich. Um, young people hang out with young people, older people hang out with older people. People should look at the church and see all of these people who couldn't be more different in terms of what they have in common, speaking in a worldly sense, and they should be astounded when they look at the church and they see yet they love one another. They sacrifice for one another. They should be astounded to see those stereotypes totally overthrown in the church. As they see younger people genuinely enjoying hanging out with the older people. As they see single people hanging out with the married. And on and on. People who have different opinions on all sorts of things, and yet, they love one another. What is the reason for that? It's because Jesus died to make us His body. And we are now called as the church to demonstrate that unity that Christ has purchased through the way that we love and forbear with one another, how we weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. There is a saltiness about the church that dwells together in unity. And brothers and sisters, if you've been around Bethany for any length of time, I think, I I hope at least, You've experienced something of that, the blessedness of that kind of culture. Okay. And we should give God praise and thanks for that, that genuinely, we are not constantly on the verge of civil war with one another, and that there aren't cliques and, and factions and parties, and you know, on Sundays, everyone has nice smiles, but really we know behind the scenes, this group's with this side, and this group's with this side. We should praise God that He has genuinely given us that, that measure of love and unity together. Not, not perfectly, I get that, okay? but sincerely. And I think by the grace of God, He's given us a culture of, you know what? Jesus is Lord. He's bought my brother as well as myself. And therefore, by the grace of God, I want to serve Christ and honor Him in the way that pleases Him. Look back at the psalm. One one thing that I think we can miss in this psalm is how it assumes that we don't live in a world where unity is common. Right? When someone has to say, Behold, how good it is and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity, that should cue us into the sad reality that in the world that we live in, strife is the norm, division is the norm. I mean, we can get so used to unity in the church that we forget it's the exception and not the rule. The sad reality is since Adam, our first father, fell in the garden, one of the results of sin is that the whole created order then fell in Adam into a state of enmity. Enmity first of all between us and God, and secondly, as a result of that, enmity between me and you and you and me i mean the very first chapter after sin enters the world in our bibles we have brothers literally killing one another we have marriages filled with strife and conflict because here's here's the deal sin by definition operates on a principle of selfishness and self-serving That's what sin is. We've turned in on ourselves so that we worship ourselves, which divides us from others who don't worship us. And it gives sinners this attitude by default that the moment someone crosses me or does something that I disagree with or does something that I'm, I'm offended by or whatever it might be, rather than love that person, the natural person says, no, we're going to war about this. and. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get even with you and to vindicate myself. That's what sin by nature apart from the grace of God does. It creates rivalry and dissension. The opposite of love and unity. James 4. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James nails it on the head in terms of what causes conflicts. That's the problem with mankind. Sin by its nature is self-centered and self-exalting, and therefore it alienates others. And brothers and sisters, you know this, there is only one answer in all the world that can solve that problem. The grace of God in Christ. Right? We, you hear all about... I mean, for centuries, man has been after this idea of utopia, world peace. If we just change this system or adapt this system, it's going to happen finally. And God sits in heaven and holds the human race in derision because all of our greatest plans lead to futility apart from the Gospel of Christ. Ephesians 2.14 He Himself is our peace. Our peace is a person. Christ is the One who has broken down the walls of hostility. He has taken to Himself our rebellion, our hostility, our self-centeredness, Upon himself, bearing its guilt, and he has taken away sin's dominion in all who trust him, so that we might then begin to reflect his peace. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, I want to speak to you. This is a sermon, obviously, mostly directed towards those who know Christ, but I want to speak to you as an unbeliever. You're not a stranger to what I'm talking about. Right? You live in the same world I live in. And even though you may not have a way to explain why it is, you know that we live in a world that is marked by hatred and division. And God has revealed to us in His Word that the root cause of that is that we as sinners have rebelled against God and therefore entered into a state with enmity towards God, and as a secondary result, we are at enmity with our fellow Man, We have separated ourselves from God and separated ourselves from one another. And here's the Gospel that you need to believe. While God could have justly left this world to its own destruction and damnation and judgment, instead, God the Father sends His Son, God in the flesh, who came as a man and lived sinlessly, and died a substitutionary death to pay for the sins of His people, and who rose again the third day and now sits at the right hand of God in glory in order to make one new humanity through His cross. That is what kills division and buries division not men's efforts at utopia and world peace. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only Christ achieved for sinners not only the forgiveness of their sins, but only Christ has accomplished the very death of the power of sin. So that sinners who were once enslaved to hatred and enmity and division can be freed from that slavery to genuinely through Christ serving God by His Spirit in a way that honors God. And I want to say to you, sinner, who is outside of Christ, this very morning, this moment, if you trust Christ, you will immediately be transferred from a state of enmity with God and enter into a state of peace with God. So that God no longer holds your sins against you, and you can, by the grace of God, begin to walk in the love and the unity that is described in this psalm. Let's turn back to the psalm. Let's consider then verses 2 and 3, the illustrations. David states the main point in verse 1. He now illustrates it with two illustrations in verse 2 and 3. Now, at first glance, especially if you've never heard a sermon on this uh, this text, at first glance, you might read verses 2 and 3 and honestly just wonder what on earth is David describing here. Um, and I want to try to simplify it for you. It's really not that complex once you kind of get into the head and the mind of his Jewish audience who would have understood what he was getting at. Both of these illustrations, the oil on Aaron's beard and the dew from... Mount Hermon. Both of these are teaching the same point two different ways, okay? They both emphasize that unity in the church is a gift that comes down to us from God. Okay? Now, I want to show you how we know that. Both illustrations, notice, have to do with something descending from a higher place onto a lower place. Okay? And actually... um, there's, there's a phrase in the Hebrew that it unfortunately doesn't come across as clearly in most um, English translations, though the NASB ninety-five does get it. Um, there's one phrase in the Hebrew that is repeated three times throughout ver- verses two and three, and if we were to translate it woodenly, it would say this, beginning in verse two. It is like the precious oil on the head coming down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Coming down on the collar of his robes, and then verse 3 it is like the dew of Hermon, which stands at about 9,000 feet, coming down on the mountains of Zion. That phrase, coming down, is the common thread of these illustrations. Brotherly love and unity is a gift that descends to us from God above. Okay, now. That's not denying our responsibility to pursue unity, and I'll spend the whole close of this sermon giving us practical ways that we can do that. But as verse 3 says, it is the Lord who commands the blessing. That's something very important for us to remember and reflect on, Bethany. The unity we have enjoyed and the fact that we have been kept as one mind is because God from heaven has graciously commanded the blessing. One commentator said, We have not so much attained this as the Lord has bestowed it. So that's the main point. Unity is a gift that comes down to us from God on high. But in addition to that overarching point, each of these illustra- illustrations paints the blessing of unity in a distinct way. Okay? Verse 2, with the Illustration of Aaron's beard and Aaron being anointed with the anointing oil stresses that brotherly unity sets the people of God apart. Okay? So his drawing our attention to the priests, to Aaron and the anointing oil, stresses that unity sets the people of God apart. Now, to show you that, I'm going to read you an excerpt from Exodus 30, verses 30 through 33. This is the section regarding the anointing of the priests with the anointing oil. Exodus 30, verse 30 through 33. God says, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests, and you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. And notice, It shall not be poured on the body of any ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people." Now, if there's one thing you walk away with from Exodus 30 right there, it's that the priests in the Old Testament who are anointed with this oil are distinct. They are unique. They are set apart to God. And David, in using that as an illustration of brotherly love, is saying that kind of distinction, the way the oil made the priests distinct, that's what God's people are like when they dwell together in unity. And not surprisingly, the New Testament picks up this theme and calls the church a kingdom of what? Priests. Because we all who are in Christ have become in Christ priests unto God. We have entered into the Holy of Holies through our great High Priest. And we are indwelt by the same Spirit. And when we love one another and are of one mind, we demonstrate to the world that truly there is something unique here. There is something distinct about the church. God is in their midst. And in fact, it's very very fascinating. In 1 Corinthians 14, you remember the Corinthian church were guilty of all types of disorderliness, divisions, factions. Paul has to exhort them on how they're coming to the Lord's table and just acting totally out of sync of what love looks like. And chapter 14, Paul says this very interesting thing that if you come together and an unbeliever is in your midst, Paul says that if they see you doing things in order and doing things in a way in which you are loving your brother and serving the needs of your brother rather than selfishly serving yourself, Paul says the unbeliever will fall on his face and say surely God is amongst them. Unity sets the church apart and displays the glory of God in the Gospel. But then there's this second illustration in verse 3, the picture of of the dew. The analogy of the dew teaches us that unity, not only does it set us apart, but unity is refreshing. Okay? Dew often, in, the, in particular in the Old Testament Scriptures, dew is often used as a, a picture for refreshment and the restoration of new life. Okay? And Mount Hermon, again, put yourself in the mind of the Jewish pilgrim, Mount Hermon, was the highest of its, of its mountain range. It stands at about 9,000 feet elevation. Okay? And it was well known, still is well known for its lush greenery. Because of its elevation, it was const- it's constantly covered in snow and rain and dew. And Hermon is a picture of life and vitality. Well, compare that with Mount Zion that sits at about 2,000 feet elevation. It's located about 100 miles away from Mount Hermon. And because of its elevation, it rarely got rain, and its summers can be very dry, and its summer crops often depend upon the moisture and the dew descending upon it from Mount Hermon. And David here is saying that is what unity is like for the people of God it is life giving, it is refreshing. There is nothing, some of you have experienced this from previous church contexts, there is nothing that breeds discouragement like discord in the body. Um, There have been times as a pastor where there are just little issues that arise in the church. Nothing nothing major, but you know, there's little skirmishes that happen and And it's amazing how quickly when you just realize there's there's a couple people who aren't happy with another couple couple people, how just soul-withering it can be as anxiety creeps in and and you begin to realize how fragile unity is. And you begin to realize what a blessing unity is that I've been taking for granted and now the Lord is showing me that it's not just a given. But the contrast of that, what David is saying, is there is a refreshment that unity brings like nothing else can bring. When no matter what a church faces, there is a unity that whether the Lord brings to us hard providences, whether there be transitions in leadership or differences in opinion, how refreshing it is when members are not just immediately drawing daggers towards one another, but rather are saying, that okay, the Lord has given this to us, now how can we apply the Gospel and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? That is refreshing when the body receives the providence of God. This is what the Lord has for us to teach us. And yet, the attitude is we are in this together and no matter what, for Christ's sake, we are going to love one another through this so that the work of the Gospel can go forward there is a sense in which that kind of love and forbearance is contagious and multiplies across the congregation. As one brother or sister sees the other brother or sister clothe themselves in humility and patience, that causes them to want to do the same thing. And let me just say, Bethany, as your pastor, seeing that tangible evidence of God's grace within you is such a joy to your pastor's. And I say that on behalf of John and Gary. We really believe that and give thanks for that. It's such an encouragement to our souls. And so may we as a body continue to seek and pursue this unity that not only sets us apart in the eyes of the world, but this unity that refreshes our hearts together and unites our hearts afresh. That's our exposition of the text. We've opened up something of the thrust of the psalm and the illustrations. I want to close here with six practical ways that we can pursue unity together. Okay, These are the same six I gave you. If I preached on this last year, it's the same six I gave you last year. Okay? Same six the year before if I didn't preach on it last year. But it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to write them down again because I doubt you're taking it out every day and looking at these six things. Okay? Let's be practical as we close. Six exhortations, six ways for us to pursue unity in the church. Number one, and this ought to be number one because it's so easy to forget, pray for unity. Pray for unity. Not only are the Psalms prayers and therefore we should be praying the Psalms, but as David has made plain, unity is the gift that comes down to us from above. It's not just something we can mechanically, if we just pull up our bootstraps and we, we'll do this thing. It is, mysteriously, though we have to pursue it, it is something that's bestowed upon us by God. And so, Christian, pray for unity. It can be really easy when something comes up and we have a disagreement with someone or whatever, it can be really easy for our, 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 our a default prayer to be Lord change their mind and help them to agree with Me, right? When in reality, what we ought to be praying is Lord, regardless of whether we even ultimately agree, help me to keep my heart and to still love them and for them to still love Me even if we don't come to an agreement on this. Make this a regular item on your prayer list, Bethany. That God would keep division from us. He would bless us with the bonds of peace. Number two, Mix with people who are not like you. Okay? And this is something we have to do on purpose. It takes discipline. Again, just like I mentioned, the world by nature hangs out with the people who are exactly like them. We still have that tendency as Christians. So we have to force ourselves to be with those who are different from us. There is a danger to always confining ourselves to being with people in the church that are just like me. Because what can tend to happen is because they're just like me, and because they like all the same things I like, and they share all the same preferences and opinions that I share, what happens is we become then fixated on those things in an unhealthy way. And things that actually are very relatively unimportant uh, all of a sudden become in my mind very, very important. and you tend to gravitate towards the same discussion and the same criticisms over and over, and it begins to slowly but surely breed contempt towards others, because not even on purpose, but we've made this thing the thing that is the basis of our unity, but purposefully mixing with others who are very different from us, and by different, I mean different in every way, not well, not every way, I don 't mean doctrinally, okay I'm not. Don't start hanging out with the Unitarians just for fun. Okay? That's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, different for me in age. Different for me in stage of life. Taste. Differences in terms of they see things differently than me in the world. Doing that breeds a very tender and patient heart towards one another. Because it causes us to realize the Christian umbrella, even within my local church, is actually very broad on this particular issue, whatever it might be. Uh, and it causes us to realize that maybe my opinion is just my opinion. And, you know, it's actually it's, it's funny to me as a pastor. Um, oftentimes in the Lord's providence, I'll, I'll see two members, or, or, or probably more often, a member and a new visitor, who I know, they don't know this, but I know those, those two people are in radically different places on certain things. And I'll see all of a sudden, you know, in God's providence, they start hitting it off and their relationship is, you know, they're hanging out. My way of approach to that is I need to get in the middle of that and make sure those people don't talk to each other for the sake of just not letting this thing blow up. My approach is, Lord, this is how the church functions And I pray, Lord, that you would teach them what it means to walk in love towards one another. When they discover that they have really different opinions on this, (laughs) Lord, teach them to have forbearance and patience. Number three, if you're offended or you know you've offended someone, seek reconciliation. Okay? If you're offended or you've uh, been, or if you've, uh, excuse me, let me start over. If you're offended or if you know you've offended someone, seek reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, Matthew 18 should be a very well-practiced portion of Scripture for us. Keep short accounts with your brothers and your sisters. If you can't let love cover an offense, and you know that this is going to bother me if I don't confront them on this... You biblically have a responsibility before Christ to go to your brother or go to your sister and address it. Okay. We're not given the third option of not dealing with it, but still dwelling on it and letting it fester within our hearts. And let me add this, brothers and sisters: don't go to others. Right? If there are others in the church who have, they're just not related to the offense, and perhaps it was even sin. But if there are others that are not directly involved with that, don't invite them into the circle. Okay? Jesus says, go to your brother one-on-one and win your brother. Because if we don't obey that, that is a recipe for disunity and faction in the church. Because not only are we allowing that offense to, to, to fester in my heart, but now I've caused another brother or sister to have the same view towards that brother, and meanwhile, I haven't even addressed it with them. Love your brother and your sister enough and Christ enough to go directly to them to work through it and to apply the Gospel so that you can move forward in genuine love and in the grace of God. I'll add this. Last last little point on that point. If you've been offended, go to your brother quickly. Matthew five and elsewhere, it's not for no reason that Paul tells the Ephesians to not let the sun go down on your anger, lest the devil get a foothold. If you're offended, go to them before it turns from a small issue into a big issue. Number four: fourth practical exhortation. Err on the side of overcommunication rather than undercommunication. Err on the side of overcommunication rather than undercommunication. So for instance, you've had, let's say you've had interaction with your brother or your sister, and it just didn't go that well. You hoped it would go better, but it just didn't. And we still left not feeling like we've totally worked this thing out. Maybe someone got a little frustrated, maybe someone got heated. Don't just assume that everything is fine and that everything is okay. There are many small things. We shouldn't do this, but this is the reality. There are many small things that we allow to grow and to fester into something very serious that could have just been nipped in the bud. And so, if you think, you know, I have a feeling that not everything is just totally okay between us. Just things as simple as a hey, on a Sunday morning, pulling your brother aside, and say, hey, brother, I just wanted to make sure we're Okay. Are you still offended with me? Or maybe you have to confess sin. And brother, in our last conversation, I don't know if you even knew or not, but I got a little heated in my heart, and I want to seek Your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? That kind of just erring on the side of caution, that kind of face-to-face communication goes a long way in preserving unity and love within the church. Number five, learn the difference between preference and principle. Okay. Learn the difference between preference and principle. This is a very challenging area for Christians. I'm still growing in this. You're still growing in this. We will grow in this until the Lord takes us to, to Himself. One of the most challenging things for us is to learn how to triage the importance of certain issues. Okay? There are righteousness and sin issues that are black and white. Right? Very plain. There's no room for us to budge on those things. Then there are prudence issues or wisdom issues, which it's not black and white. Rather, it's just seeking to understand the, the wisest way forward in, in light of certain gray areas and things like that. And then thirdly, there are, at the bottom of the rung, there's preference issues. And these are things that, you know, I just like to do it this way because that's the way I am, right? There's nothing right or wrong about it. It's just I am who I am and that's how I've always done it. The perennial challenge for us is because of our remaining corruption, we are always tempted to move things that belong on that bottom rung of preference up to the top rung, right? And those opinions become the, the tests of orthodoxy, right? And you know, whether you're actually a Christian depends on whether you agree with me on, on these things. And Christian, learn the difference between those things. Ask yourself when you're trying to evaluate the importance of a disagreement or whatever it might be. Ask yourself: Is there actually a biblical principle that is clearly being violated here? And if there isn't, be very patient. Be humble. Be long-suffering with those who might see things differently than you. Don't make those um, those preferential issues things that divide us in any way. Number six, lastly, as we come to a close. Learn to let love cover a multitude of sins. Learn to let love cover a multitude of sins. Part of loving one another in the church is recognizing that if I don't think an issue necessitates bringing it up to the person, I have a responsibility, therefore, to cover it in love completely not to just say that I've covered it or tell, me, or tell myself I've covered it, but really I'm thinking about it day and night, but to actually cover it in love. Um, if you can't let it go, then you need to do Matthew 18. right? But covering a sin in love means I am committing myself to not bringing this up. I'm not going to let it embitter me towards my brother. And I'm not going to allow it to hinder our fellowship together. And this is something we need to learn to grow in. Not every single sin needs to be, you know, in, in a big public way addressed, right? If we did that, we would just be at each other's throats all the time. But we need to learn how to as sinners and and or excuse me, as saints dwelling together, even though we continue to sin against one another, we need to learn how to cover certain offenses in love and to let love where possible cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, I think the apostle John whether it's completely accurate or not, the principle is right. If we have love for one another, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. And so, let's respond to God's word by giving God thanks for the unity that he's given us and by being exhorted to not be presumptuous, but to continue to pursue these things. To continue to pursue brotherly love. Love for one another that exemplifies the kind of love that Christ has shown us. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Father, we again commit ourselves to You. We pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Lord, forgive us for where we have failed to pursue these things. All of us. All of us, Father, this morning know that we have not loved one another perfectly as Christ has loved us. We thank You for that reason that we have Christ. We thank You that He is our peace. He is our righteousness. He is our perfect shepherd. He is the One who has welcomed all of us with a perfect knowledge of all of our sins. He died to have us and to make us one. Father, cause us. If Christ, the sinless One, died to love us, cause us, Father, who are sinful, to love one another. We pray that You would grant us this gift from above. Cause us, Lord, to not take it for granted. To just presume that it will always be something that You afford to us, but cause us to respond with thankfulness and gratitude. Lord, prepare our hearts now as we come to the Lord's table. We pray, Father, that You would renew our faith, renew our assurance, give us a fresh a fresh knowledge of the grace of Christ towards sinners. Lord, as we often sing, we pray that Your Spirit would convict us of our sin and then lead to Jesus' blood. Lord, it is good for us to be convicted so that we can afresh apply the Gospel to our hearts, that we can be reminded of the infinite sufficiency of Christ to forgive all the sins of all of His people, that there will never be a shortage of grace in Him, and to be, remember, to be reminded of His tender heart towards us. Father, bless us and draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.